0: It's widely understood that the property prices are on the rise again, even while interest rates continue to increase and borrowing capacities subsequently fall. These conditions hit first home buyers the hardest, which is probably a major contributor to why the Bank of Mum and Dad is the fifth largest lender in this country. And from a societal perspective, this will continue to drive a wedge between the haves and the have nots. For those first home buyers fortunate enough to have parents wealthy enough to help them, great. For the rest, this divide will exacerbate generational disadvantage. But from a business perspective, what opportunities does this offer for the development of different lending products?
1: Welcome to the elephant in the room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready, and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide.
2: And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional.
0: Today's guest has moved from a conventional banking career into the world of startups and fintech, and we're keen to understand how innovation is playing out in the lending space. Brian Hartzer spent 15 years in senior executive roles at major banks in Australia and the UK, and these included being CEO at Westpac, and divisional chief executive roles at the Royal Bank of Scotland and ANZ and he is now the chairman of 2B a Sydney startup a home equity lender for over 55s as well as Beforepay a fintech startup and Rejig an HR technology startup and he's also a senior advisor at Quantium which is a Sydney-based data science company and another private mortgage lender. He's also an angel investor in and ad- advisor to several fintech and technology startups. This is all a bit of a tongue twister, but what I'm trying to show you, he's got quite a pedigree. <laughs> and we're really impressed that you decided to join us today, Brian. Um, And this is a great conversation, I think, very timely in terms of what's happening in the property market with affordability, et cetera, et cetera. So thanks for joining us and we're looking forward to this chat.
3: Thanks. Thanks for having me. Nice to Nice to be here. Brian,
2: obviously, we've met before, and we've had a bit of a chat around the to be and the story, but we I mean, we've done two hundred and fifty odd episodes now on this podcast, and we haven't really done delve deep into the bank of mum and dad really. And it's been a huge player in the property market. Um we do a lot with the sort of first home buyers, and you know you can really see you know a big majority are sort of getting help from somewhere, whether it's early inheritances or gifts, et cetera. So just just to enlighten us, I guess, and our listeners on, you know how big the bank of mum and dad is and you know and potentially how big it could be i guess if they had access to to more
3: money yeah well i think it is already a very big lender i think you cited that at the start of the uh, podcast that this has become a a huge uh, feature of the property market and um for better or worse certainly for people who are trying to get on the property ladder given what's happened to house prices over the last pick a number, 10 years, 15 years, uh, it's really difficult for people to get going if they haven't got a bit of help from, from the parents who've built up equity in their homes. Uh, and there's another big demographic aspect here, which is just the aging of the baby boomers means that you've got five and a half million people who have been, many of them paying mortgages. A lot of them have paid them off now. I think our, our numbers are there's about 1.8 million people in that demographic who have paid off their home completely and are now by definition having kids who are in that first home buyer range. And so looking to find ways to help them out. Um, The ones who've got lots of excess liquidity obviously are in a good position, but the ones who maybe have their assets tied up in homes or investment properties don't necessarily have the cash to help. And that's been the particular issue that we decided to try to uh, assist them with.
2: Yeah, so there's a huge gap in the market, right? There's not really, uh, which we'll talk about later, is like reverse home loans. There's not really many options for people over the, the age of you know, you know, getting close to retirement or retired, right? There's a, it's a huge gap in bank policy um, that exists.
3: Yeah, so one of the big things that's happened over the last 10 years is what I think of as overregulation, well intended, uh, but a desire under the rubric of responsible lending The focus of banks' credit policies, with the encouragement of ASIC, has been to really focus on serviceability and free cash flow as a way to pay off a loan, and not focusing on the asset backing that someone has. And we think in an environment where many people's primary asset is their home or the investment properties that they own, that it's not really right from a uh, it's certainly not economic and it it doesn't make sense from a society point of view to not give people an opportunity to borrow against those properties and as as you and I've talked about Chris there are lenders out there who if you if you have the right connections if you work really hard at it will eventually find a way to give you a solution that lets you borrow against assets but it's difficult and actually the main focus for many lenders is really people who have a salaried income and can pay off the loan over the term of that loan. And obviously, if you're getting to 55, 60, 65, and you're approaching retirement, your ability to say, yes, I'm going to have this free cash flow for the next 5, 10, 15 years is is getting more difficult. And so we think that's opened up a big gap in the market where everyone's busy fighting over um, upgraders and first home buyers, and no one's really paying attention to a very significant portion of the population who have a lot of value in in the equity in their homes.
0: This is actually quite interesting for a lot of reasons. One is because I just turned 55.
3: I'm so- Welcome to the club. All of a
0: sudden- (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all of a sudden yeah, I'm in the group. It sneaks up on you quickly. It
3: sneaks up on you <laughs> it quickly, sure doesn't does. it?
0: If anyone's out there in their 20s and 30s think, Jesus, she's old. Well, let me tell you, I used to think that only yesterday. Now, you know, and, and and I look at my situation now and I think to myself, if I wanted to borrow money, then the bank's not going to want to give me a 30-year mortgage. And, and then that makes me 85 at the end of it. And I have to have exit strategies and all these sort of stuff. And yet I've got a huge amount of equity you know and if i want to slow down and and earn less and and slow down a little bit and and enjoy the benefit of all the hard work i've done but also the investments that i've made over time then my options are actually limited in some regards if i don't want to sell something so i guess what would be really interesting for you to run through what is so it's not just helping your kids you know get into the property market i would imagine there's a lot of reasons that somebody over 55 might want to borrow Without necessarily selling down an asset in order to access uh, some funds, can you run through some of the scenarios that that you could see, you know, that you're you're solving here for?
3: Yeah, that's that's quite right. Um, the, by the way, the reason we called the business to be is it comes from the idea of to be or not to be, and the idea that if you're in this stage of life now, is the time to be. Now is the time to be enjoying what you've built up and take advantage of of that position that you've gotten yourself to. And so the bank of mom and dad opportunity with first home buyers was the first thing that jumped out of the research that we did as being something that really resonated with people. But we're also seeing interest in funding holidays, um, readjusting investment portfolios, uh, just having a bit of extra cash to renovate. In particular, renovation is a, is a big one. Um, buying a, a lifestyle asset, a boat, um, an RV, those sorts of things. Uh, and also, to an extent, looking at diversifying their investments, so perhaps they want to have a bit more money in their super rather than um, just in uh, just in tied up in property. If they have a, a view on where the markets are, are going, there. Those are the main ones. I might I might think of one or two others as we go. So,
0: would somebody borrow potentially if if they're looking at a sort of a shorter runway in terms of their earning capacity? Um, would they borrow enough to then? include a buffer? Would that be something that would be envisaged there so that they don't have to really worry about the earnings, particularly if they're borrowing to invest? Say they're borrowing to put mum money in their super for argument's sake. Um, Is that something that's possible in in, in terms of the solutions that you're offering?
3: Yeah. So the way it works for us is you're borrowing purely based on the asset value and your credit history. And, um, You can borrow an amount that's linked to your age and the value of your property. So, essentially, the loan to value ratio that you can draw down on depends on how old you are. So, for us at 55, you can borrow 15% of the value of your property up to 35% if you're 75. So, it increases 1% a year. And we don't mind what people use the money for we do ask and we we describe it as any legitimate purpose um so if you told us you were going to gamble it we'd probably say no um but you know as long as it's a, a reasonable use um it does give you access to that money and our loan is structured as a five year loan with the option of capitalizing interest so if someone is looking to um buy an asset or lend money to their kids they have the ability to draw down on that equity um, choose to capitalize interest and then pay it all back at the end of five years. When perhaps at that time they're planning to downsize or sell an asset, or or maybe their kids are going to pay them back by refinancing those sorts of things.
2: Yeah, and i basically mean, um to talk, Brian, about like th- there's not many options, right? Because I think you were working at um, Westpac when you shut down um, reverse mortgages, right? Like it wasn't a big profit-making exercise for the risk versus the reward, I guess, in the banks, and so. It's a real gap in the marketplace. People think, oh, obviously, just access to reverse
3: mortgages is really easy, but it just doesn't. It's not really like that's how it works in Australia. No, that's right. Actually, the um, reverse mortgage industry in Australia has shrunk quite dramatically. And as you say, there is a certain irony in this, which is it was my decision to shut reverse mortgages down at Westpac, at ANZ, and at RBS when was in the UK. And, and the reason that I did that was not because I didn't believe in the product or believe in the demand. But because from the perspective of a large branded bank, the compliance and PR and legal challenges around traditional reverse mortgages just became more trouble than they were worth is, in simple terms. And there were um, just examples where uh, with all good intentions, people had done a reverse mortgage and then fif- 10, 15 years later... The customer is, has become infirm, and typically it was the kids would come along and say, wait a minute, you've taken advantage of my parents. And even though it was all legitimate at the time, uh, it just became a, a bit of a nightmare. Um, and banks, large banks have to focus their exercises. They're all going through simplification and the like. And, and so we, we made that decision, but it bothered me at the time because I thought this is actually a societal need. And it was one of the reasons why we went back to it when I, after I left Westpac, i thinking, hang on, there is, I know there is this gap in the market there, to go after. I think the other thing to say about, and, and as a consequence of that, there are only probably five or six providers of reverse mortgages left in Australia, of which technically we are one, although our product works a bit differently than most reverse mortgages. The other subtlety is most remor- reverse mortgage players are. We talk about it internally as people who need the money as opposed to people who want the money, um, and so it's people who only own their home, don't have a lot of other assets, and therefore their only way to stay in their home is to get a reverse mortgage. We're targeting a more affluent segment of customers who actually do have other assets. They could sell those assets, but they don't want to. They would they they are more sophisticated. They're looking for a solution that provides them some liquidity for a period of time. You can almost think of it as a bit of a bridging loan towards some other thing that they're planning to do in the future.
0: So a couple of questions. Can you just briefly explain how a reverse mortgage works? And then I'm curious to know what the sort of, you know, what's the difference in interest rates for argument's sake? You know, like obviously uh, there's there's more risk I guess, potentially to you guys than, you know, in the typical banking model, perhaps. So it'd be interesting to know, I guess, how how you price that. But yeah, how does, do you want to explain? It's a long time since I've spoken to anybody about a reverse mortgage, so I can't remember.
3: Yeah, sure. So a reverse mortgage, essentially, it's a, it's a first mortgage. So there's a first mortgage, first lien on a property. And in a typical reverse mortgage, uh, an amount is advanced either as a lump sum, or as you can think of it kind of as an annuity of, a, of an amount being advanced every month or the like. And uh, the, the balance, the interest is capitalized so that the amount of the loan rises over time as a function of that, that interest. And typically there's an agreement that the loan is payable when you sell the property or go into uh, permanent care uh, for, an, for an elderly person. And at that point in time, the property is sold, the loan is repaid, and the, the remaining equity goes to uh, the client. So that's the typical solution. and It's typically been for people who are, as I say, only owning their home, don't have cash flow, need um, some extra support there.
0: And, and is there usually, sorry, is there usually a difference in interest rates? Like would they be at sort of co- commercial rates? Yeah, there are.
3: They're typically a couple of percentage points higher than a than a mortgage rate. So our rate at the moment, I think, is a, a variable rate is 8.2%, um, which is obviously a, a couple of percentage points above a, a typical mortgage rate. Part of the reason for that is that there's a bit of extra risk because you're not doing the serviceability calculation. But in particular, the ability to capitalize interest means that the people who are funding the loan are deferring. That payment for a longer period of time, and that obviously brings with it certain risks. There's also more compliance and conduct work that you need to do for a reverse mortgage than for a conventional uh, mortgage to make sure that you're not lending to people who are vulnerable or are, you know, you got to be aware of, we spent a lot of time looking at issues like elder abuse, um, all those sorts of things that you need to watch out for. And so that makes the process of, of approving one of these loans a lot more costly. But the flip side is the availability um, and the ability to rely purely on the the asset value.
2: Brian, do you see you know back in the bank days, CEO, you know talking to APRA, talking to the the institution, I guess, and the, the thoughts like you know, around responsible lending. Do you see the banks doing a reverse and going back into reverse mortgages? Like you know, there is a margin. Let's say it's two or three percent, that the because of competition, but. You know, if there was a relaxation to responsible lending and you could lend on assets rather than income, do you see that as something that they're willing to do or is it really that that door's not going to be open for a long time based on your discussions
3: you've had? I think that door's closed for a fairly long time and now it may be that some of the banks from an institutional point of view through their securitization uh, programs Mm -hmm. may provide some funding to that sector. But uh, there's just been so much challenge around the consistency of compliance for these sort of products. Uh, The experience of the Royal Commission has scarred the banks pretty significantly. The regulators are very concerned about anything that could lead to reputational risk for the bank. And one of the consequences, one of the technical subtleties here is that for a bank, these are considered non-standard mortgages, and so they have a higher capital requirement relative to a traditional mortgage. Um, And so ultimately, the logical funders of these loans are more like pension funds and insurance companies than banks because the capital treatment is a bit different. So I I personally think between the compliance team, the credit risk team, the PR and media team, the government affairs team, the strategy teams, within the big banks, there are a whole lot of uh, antibodies that would fight a suggestion of getting back into reverse mortgages. It, it, I think they generally view it as um, a lot of potential downside for not a lot of upside. And and so I, that, that's that been part of our our thinking around this is that realistically there is a gap in the market, which by the way, they acknowledge. Um, I mean, I've still got friends at a number of the big banks and they say, yeah, this is a great idea and we'll never do it. Um, and which it was pretty encouraging to us when we were setting up the business.
2: Well, I mean, another big lender is probably going to be the super funds, right? Like you can see that they're now moving more and more into residential with build to rent projects, etc. Do you do you see that you know a long term annual um, you know set sort of annuity stream is good for super funds, right? That that aligns to their members. Do you do you th- see them becoming big players in in some type of lending?
3: I do. I do. I think that um, certainly this is a product that would suit them. When I talked about pension funds and like, that's that's what I had in mind as well. Uh, I think the the difficulty is you still have to get the whole compliance conduct piece of this right, that making sure that you're handling these customers in the right way. Um, and, and that's not something that a big institutional fund manager necessarily knows how to do. But I think in the back end, in terms of providing the funding for these things, I think that is... Uh, definitely a logical element the other thing i've seen with super funds is they actually tend to be quite conservative so they don't tend to want to get into new things so i think this is a category that will develop over the next five years uh, and become more legitimized and then gradually as the volume grows you'll see more people looking at it as a as a logical place to invest their money
2: yeah you can see a lot of the moment with the um there's a bit of index hugging conversation happening within the industry um super fund world where you know, you're getting Goliath funds that are all basically investing the same. So everyone's becoming the same. Right. And, you know, new ideas is everyone's scared of making those because they don't want to fall away from the index. Right. So, uh, and then lose their customers, which is not great for innovation. Um, what about sort of the, you know, one of the things we see is brokers, clients come to us, uh, with help from bank of Mum and dad, and it's all a bit like opaque. You know, everyone's, no one's really telling, is it a loan? Is it a gift? Do I have to pay the money back? Cause everyone's very concerned about, um you know, how that would affect bank lending. Uh, And absolutely, it can do if it's a formal agreement, etc. But everyone's very also concerned around de facto risk and marriage risk, etc. And so, you know, what's your sort of take on that and why your product really, you know, elevates that conversation into a better way to protect the parents, really, um,
3: and the kids, um, because it's all documented and it's very clear. Yeah, you're making my pitch for me, which is great. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I mean, you have to be really careful when you enter into a bank of mom and dad uh, situation, and that's one of the things we've tried to do. The 2B website has quite a lot of educational material on it to help people think these issues through. So um, different lenders treat these things slightly differently. Um, We have found some ways, so at at a high level, our recommendation, um, and I'm not going to, I wouldn't call it advice because we don't give advice and people should seek independent advice um, when they're doing these things, but But our recommendation generally is that you should structure this as a loan because um, I know you guys have this concept of the Dumbo. Uh, The Dumbo situation here is where uh, well-intended parents give their money uh, to their child who's, say, married to somebody else um, and helps them buy their first property. And then a year later, the partner um, leaves and and runs away. And um, because you don't have any clawback back on that, the relationship breaks down and, and they've lost half the equity in the home, uh, even though the parents have essentially provided all of that. So our view is that you should find a way to structure this as a, uh, a, a loan. And there are a couple of ways you can do that where you can make um, the, you can have a, effectively a zero interest rate, um, but make that interest rate variable in the event that the relationship breaks up. Uh, or, or those sorts, or the loan is callable in the event that the relationship breaks up, so that you don't actually have a uh, a cash flow impact for the borrower uh, who's getting the mortgage. And the the advantage of this, obviously, is that the borrower can the, the first home buyer can come to the table with a twenty percent deposit and get a competitive no LMI interest rate home loan from from you guys, and then. Um, because you've got this ultimate security, the parents have an ability to to protect themselves. Um, we also see that there's some advantages in this. You talked about risk as well. The standard way people have often tried to solve this problem is obviously through a guarantee. And I know there's a variety of different parental guarantee products out there, but at the end of the day, a parental guarantee means that I'm in a three-way relationship between my kids, the parent, and the, and the bank. And I've got a situation where if the child falls over on their mortgage obligations, all of a sudden the bank is looking at the parent uh, for that support. And our experience in the research told us that that creates an uncomfortable psychological dynamic within the family uh, where you have the parent's house is is sort of at risk as a consequence of the child's behavior. And so our view is that um, part of why we structure it the way we do is our relationship is purely with the parent's. We give them recommendations and education about how they ought to think about it, but our view is it's your money and, um, you know, we're looking to you. And then it's up to the parents effectively how they deal with their kids. And so you don't have the bank looking to the parents and this kind of subtle dynamic that that goes on there where the parents are wondering, asking the kids all the time, how are you going with your mortgage and how are you going, you know, and all that, Be, uh, you know, it's. I mean, I don't know if you've ever lent you any money to your to your siblings or um, or family members, but you know, it, it it does create some interesting dynamics if you're not careful. So, um, we think that's another advantage of this approach.
0: Uh, on I've got another podcast, Your First Home Buyer Guide, and we interviewed a a lawyer that specialises in these agreements, family agreements. Um, Barry Frake, his name is. I'll put the link in the show notes, if anyone wants to listen to it and he he talked about um having the parents as a mortgagee and so but he did also say that some banks don't like having another mortgagee on the on the title
3: they wouldn't it, it just makes it more complicated yeah
0: yeah so i guess it is complicated is the first thing <laughs> secondly getting good advice around this but um and so that sounds quite interesting so you mentioned um earlier that a typical loan would be say 5 year loan to one of the to-be customers, um, how does that work in terms of you know the is it like you said sometimes the interest can be capitalized is it is it it's the same sort of is there a, a higher risk interest rate as a consequence of being a different type of product? How does it sort of work in a in a I guess a nuts and bolts sort of sense?
3: Sure, so it's actually a really simple product. Think of it as a five-year interest-only loan with the option to capitalize interest. That that's what it is. And it's secured by a first mortgage on the person's house. So
0: you have to own that, a house outright in order to be able to do it.
3: At this stage, yes. So we start up started with a simple um, thing. Over time, we hope to introduce second mortgages and other sorts of things. But right now, that's the product. It's really quite simple. Uh, and so th- we give people an ins- a discount on the interest rate, 25 basis points off if they pay interest as they go. Um, but they can choose to capitalize the interest and pay it all off at the end if that if that suits them. so And that's basically how it works. And then at the end, um, so we go through, it's a very simple online application process, takes about 20 minutes. Um, and then we conduct a video call with the customer to assess suitability, make sure they understand the product, understand what they want to do with it. We talk to them about how are they planning to pay that back and we ask them to have two different ways that they're thinking about paying it back. And as long as that all stacks up then we approve the loan um, pretty quickly and we can settle the loans within 24 48 hours so it's really quite a slick process that takes advantage of of technology to help us do what we need to do um, so it works really quite well and then at the, the the question people always ask is well what happens at the end um, and depending on the situation what we've seen is a lot of people are planning to sell an investment property as a way to um, to do it we, in certain circumstances, we can choose to extend the term of the loan if the if the customer asks for that. Um, uh, if they have done a bank of mom and dad type situation, the, and as long as you've had reasonable growth in property prices, the math of it is that the children can actually refinance their home in five years and pay the parents back. Um, and so that's a really neat wheeze if you like, where you've got parents who are sitting in a house that's quite valuable. Their kids want to get on the property ladder. You take a to be loan the kids have the deposit, they can then buy a house. Five years time, uh, they refinance, pay the parents back. The parents have actually had no cash flow impact because they've capitalized the interest. And the growth in the value of the home means that they can pay the parents back and they, they now own um, a big stake in, in a home. Um, thanks to their parents' help, the parents haven't ha- actually had to put out any cash. Uh, so it's a... So it's a pretty neat little strategy. It's
0: assuming that the the purchase from the children actually does go up in value. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Of
3: course. Of
2: course. And that that obviously is a huge issue, right? You know, a lot of first home buyers, a lot of parents don't even know what's a good asset, et cetera. Um and Brian and I have spoken a different time regarding that risk. And that's one of the things we are very apprehensive in doing guarantor loans. Um, there's lots of different reasons, but part of it's that, you know, the clients aren't showing any real great savings um ability. They've just lived their life and now all of a sudden they want to use their parents' equity to buy a house. So they haven't got that. And then also they're wanting to buy a poor asset, whether it's the investment or a, or a high density apartment, etc And we're like, well, you're actually punting your parents' money here, not your own. Um, and then you've got brothers and sister issues. You've got um, you know, even just the relationship dynamic. One family's providing the guarantor, one's not. The other parents feel a bit like they're not part of it. So uh, it can get really complex the guarantor thing. And so a, a straight line loan, um, and the problem is parents sometimes struggle to get that. Whether they've got to sell money out of their super fund, it's not a good time, or they've got to sell a property or and that they they just are really cash um, tight. They don't want to lose fifty grand or hundred grand, right? They they but potentially accessing it. So there's definitely a sort of a market fit. Uh, Brian, I would love to sort of, you know, banks have all come out to take the conversation in a different direction a little bit. Banks have come out with a pretty good week, right? Um, some massive profits, profits are up massively. Um you know, for lots of different reasons. What's your sort of take on the current banking, the banks, how they're performing and, and sort of some of the headwinds, I guess, they've got coming in the years to come and, yeah, how, they, how they're how they positioned?
3: Yeah. So there's a couple things there. I think one is certainly rising interest rates have been helpful to banks' margins. But having said that, these margins are still a lot lower than what they were some time ago. And if you were to look at bank stock prices over the last few years they're mostly down they're not they're not really they haven't so to say that they had big record profits well that's true but that's coming off a period of declining profit that's now starting to turn around and stabilize so i i just think it, i look at it in a i guess a longer term perspective if i look at the net interest margins of these banks which is typically something that you focus on Um, those margins are running at about one7 1.8% on their assets. That's probably 10% lower than they were a couple of years ago. So the margins are being squeezed. Um, They have had, as I say, a bit of a benefit in um, being able to reprice their loans without having to reprice their deposits. And so that's allowed them some uh, relief. But I think we're going to see more and more pressure on deposit margins. And so I don't think they're feeling overly optimistic. and they've also had to endure a huge amount of extra cost in resolving old regulatory issues in the um, you think about the ones that have had wealth businesses that have that have had to do all that kind of uh, disaggregation of their businesses. They've had huge restructuring costs. um they've had all the pressures of covid. they've had rising inflation on their supply costs. So, I think they are doing better, um, but it it would be probably pushing it a bit hard to say that it's all happy days. What we're seeing at the moment is a bit of a financially driven improvement because of the interest rate phenomenon and because um, tightening of the capital markets has meant that the banks that have big deposit bases are advantaged when it comes to lending. I mean, sure, you guys are seeing this with the non-bank sector, obviously, been having trouble getting funding and that's put a real squeeze on their margins. So that's helped the big banks with their market share. Um, But I think of that as a, as a financial cycle driven improvement as opposed to a fundamental competitive strategy driven improvement. And um, that side of things is more challenged because there's a lot of new competition out there still people's behavior is changing as a function of technology, their expectations of cust- from, from their providers are rising in terms of how good the service is going to be. Uh, the banks have been simplifying their businesses, so they're not exposed necessarily to the growth that could come from, say, the wealth sector or the aging baby boomers or some of these other things, because they've shed a lot of those businesses. So, you know, yes, it's an improvement, but it's I view it as kind of a cyclical improvement, and I think the jury is still out on the on the more structural, strategic improvement and whether they, they'll be able to do that.
2: So, I mean, I, I, absolutely, that's sort of was my take as well, is that, you know, you're right, they've been able to take advantage of deposit holders to, you know, take, lend it out in lending. But um, what's just sort of, what do you think is driving this net interest margin down? Um, obviously, it's competition. Do you think that a lot of that to do with the, the broker success story in terms of, You know, brokers, I guess, driving clients to the best deal rather than the consumer, you know, playing on their apathy and just their having a Dolomites account, etc.
1: I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at VeronicaMorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyers agent mentoring program access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs, or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If
2: you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au.
1: Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au
3: I think brokers have certainly played an important role in in price discovery through this period. Um, But I think it's just um, competition. Think of it as we've had a period where a lot of money was pumped into the economy, both globally and domestically that money ends up in people's deposit accounts, whether it's consumers or small businesses. That puts pressure on banks to lend it out because banks only make money when they lend, not when they take deposits. And so, Therefore, you've had excess money in the system competing to try to write um, good loans. You've had players like Macquarie in particular saying, hey, this is actually a business we can compete in. We don't have to have a big branch network to to play a role, uh, ING is another example of that. You've had some of these more monoline players for the last few years have been able to grow quite quite aggressively because of of relatively cheap funding that was available. That's driven prices down, um, and uh, and there's a lot of pressure. It's a bit of a long winded answer, but um, big banks are very much compared by the stock market against each other, and 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 the two things that the market looks at is is margins and market share and mortgages. And and so there's almost a slightly irrational focus among the banks on uh their mortgage market share and making sure that they're not being seen to lose out compared to their competitors. And so that's created a uh, a supply dynamic that has has really seen those margins collapse. Um so the so the interesting thing will be to see what happens to prime mortgage margins from here.
2: Yeah, see, so interesting. Like, it doesn't need to be new players, right? The banks are all cannibalizing each other, right? Needing each other's loan books and compete. So there's four. it's not just two players, right? There's four players competing against each other. That in I'd itself, say there's at
3: least five because I'd, I'd stick Macquarie. I'd stick Macquarie in there absolutely. And
2: so, um, and then everyone's worried about the clients leaving, and they're worried about the new business, and so that's really pushed. I mean, interesting. I've seen a lot of banks, even CBA, have come out, you know, in the last twenty four hours and said we're not going to do cashbacks. Do you think that the banks are? they've been basically writing loans under the the cost of capital i mean that's what they've sort of been putting out in the media and um you you feel like that that game can't it's not sustainable right um because you're just going to continue to eat into your prof- future profits and it's not going to be good for your share price
3: yeah i mean i hate to i hate to sound like an old guy in in all of this but i've seen these these cycles in the way the banks are very um the focus on the share price for the banks means that they're very attuned to the narrative that's coming out of the equity analysts. And and they tend to be quite cyclical in what they're worried about. They tend to get a bee in their bonnet about what's really important, and then that tends to drive activity. So um, for the last couple of years, there's been a real focus on who's winning and who's losing in terms of market share. And, and the, what the analysts are trying to do is say, of the four banks, which one should I invest in? I need to invest in some, so am I going to go for NAB now, or is Westpac advantaged, or is it CBA? And and so for the last couple of years, they've been looking at market share movements to and who they think is going to win in the market share side to drive where they invest. Now they're starting to say, well, actually, this is a bit silly. Who's going to have the margin? And so now the narrative is probably cyclically shifting back a bit to who's managing their margins well um and and you saw i mean it's really interesting there was coverage of the westpac result that came out yesterday in in today's paper that was uh giving them great kudos for saying we're not going to be trying to win market share we're going to stay in the market but we're going to manage our margins well and suddenly everyone's saying yay hooray that's terrific well you know a couple of years ago they're getting beaten up over their market shares going down so i just think this kind of, the narrative seems to come and go, um, and and that tends to drive the dynamic on pricing. And so I think that, that CBA announcement was certainly a telling one, given their importance in the market. And it'll be interesting to see if the others take that as a sign that maybe it's it's time to focus a bit more on margin rather than uh, market share.
2: Yeah, Macquarie being been very um, against it, you know, even pricing existing customers. Westpac, as an example, though, have been pricing their existing customers. Same with NAB, very, very competitively. So, you know, if they've been existing customers asking for a better deal, they've been offering them great rates, you know, to so they don't leave. Because there's, what's your sort of thoughts on this? There's a lot of talk about the fixed rate cliff, right? Um, what's your thoughts behind the scenes at a bank, um, you know, been running the show? What's your thoughts about how a bank will do everything it can to keep people in their homes and it's not in their interest to sort of, you know, take homes off people, I guess, even if they, do you think that there's, a bigger picture at play where APRA will work with the banks to, if anyone does get into you know mortgage stress, higher interest rates over the next couple of years, that they'll be able to do things that
3: they typically wouldn't have been able to do in other you know cycles? Yeah, so I think there's two different issues at play there. I think from a credit risk perspective about the issue of people literally not being able to pay their mortgage, uh, certainly... In, in my time, we have long had the view that the last thing we ever want to do is throw somebody out of their house because it's just it's just bad for everybody, including the banks. So as a general statement, if someone is trying to do the right thing and is in a temporarily difficult situation, the bank will will work with the customer to try to resolve that. And and the advice that I would certainly Suggest that you should give to your listeners and and anyone you come across is if you are having trouble that you really should call the bank because they they have programs typically to try to help people through these these difficult times. But I think the other issue around this one is um, I was uh, chatting with the head of mortgages at one of the big banks just the other day, and I asked him about this, and he was completely relaxed about it because and and that didn't surprise me from what I knew, which was that. Actually, for the last few years, the banks have been building up pretty significant buffers in the way that they assess credit. So um, you had assumed before you gave someone a loan that they could absorb a pretty significant increase in the interest rate that that they were paying, even with the fixed rate. So you weren't lending on the basis of the previous fixed rate in terms of determining their borrowing capacity. You were lending on the basis that that rate was actually a couple hundred to 300 basis points higher. Uh, and so a lot of what we're seeing now says customers actually still have that buffer to be able to pay it. The other thing is that um, people have built up quite significant savings over the last few years. So those savings tend to also be associated with people who've got mortgages. So there will be exceptions and there will be smaller segments of people who, who run into difficulty. But my assessment is that the the ones who genuinely get into difficulty will be a pretty small percentage, and the banks will generally want to help them out. The bigger issue is more for the economy, that what, what this issue does is it squeezes out spending in other parts of the economy. And an interesting thing to to point out is that is actually the point of what the Reserve Bank is doing. They are trying to slow inflation. They don't have a lot of levers. The best lever they have is to actually squeeze people's spending by lifting what they have to spend on their mortgage ironically
2: yeah it's interesting you say that because going into 20th uh recent boom you're right i mean we could still borrow at seven eight times income potentially uh, most around that six to seven but if you went back to 2014 it could have been you know 10 or 12 times depending on the calculator right so it's, it's lucky we didn't go into the higher interest rate environment if we had that run-up in lending up to 2014, 2015, if it was still on those massive multiples, we would have even bigger price gains, but that people wouldn't have been able to cope. Or p-
0: perhaps those people might be the ones that might be most at risk then, the people that borrowed back then. You know, no one's talking about them, and they might have more equity, but-
3: Yeah, most of those people have paid down quite a lot of their loans by now, is is my experience. Um but yeah, I agree with you on that, Chris. I think um, the regulator deserves credit um, in terms of pushing the banks to be more conservative on that, and the banks themselves. I would think I mean, there's a perception that that banks are are kind of cowboys and want to just lend irresponsibly. They don't. I mean, what you have is a, a genuine constructive di- discussion between the banks and the regulators as to what is the right point, what's too conservative and hurts customer service and and the economy versus um what's uh, overly liberal and and gets people into trouble everyone actually has this my experience is people have the same objectives around that it's just a debate about where to draw that line i mean you are
2: mr wagyu i guess you were the guy that uh we covered this um we covered this quite a lot in this podcast it was it was probably my number one news story back in 2018 that i was watching like a hawk um You know, and uh, waiting for everything I could hear in the media, could you give us a bit of an understanding for our listeners of, you know, the fight between Westpac and ASIC back in sort of 2018 and what happened behind closed doors and, you know, and and what, what, why that was such a big moment for the property market and lending in general? It was, it was a huge case um, that rightly got a lot of media.
3: Yeah. So, in simple terms, um, there was a debate about, how much detail the bank needed to go into in analyzing a customer's expenses before making a loan and determining that that loan was responsible or or suitable for the customer. Westpac had taken the view that by relying on uh, benchmarks around what customers spent on different categories, um, depending on who that customer was, their age and stage and the rest of it, that that was... In fact, a not only sufficient, but a better way of determining how much a customer could afford to spend on the mortgage. ASIC's view was no, no, no. The customer has given you their bank statements. You must go through them in detail. And if they spent, you know, however much money on holidays, that's what you need to build into the thing. So our view was in simple, normal human terms, well, hang on fine i might have spent that money on a holiday and you know whatever i've gone to nusa last year but I, but if i've if i've now bought a house i will adjust my expenses so that i can make my mortgage payment that is both just sensible and it's also what experience told us and um but asic took a very firm view and effectively sued us and said no 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 you're lending irresponsibly because you're not analyzing people's expenses properly. And um, our view and my view was, I'm sorry, I just don't agree with that. And so we, we fought the case um, in court. Um, it was very painful because we went through a period for a couple of years there where the market was concluding that somehow Westpac's mortgage book was very risky and that we were being irresponsible. We were very confident that that was not true. Um, and, but it was, it, you know, as one of my colleagues used to say, when you're explaining, you're losing. So it was a very, it was a very difficult time for us, um, in terms of that perception. But ultimately we won the case. And the, the reason you referred to Wagyu, the, the reason it's called the Wagyu and Shiraz case is that the judge in his judgment on this said, I might eat the finest Wagyu and drink the finest Shiraz every night. But when I take out a mortgage, I can get along on much simpler fare, I think was his, was his line which is actually quite a nice way of of articulating the point that actually real people know that taking out a mortgage is a responsibility, and they tend to adjust their spending to suit that, which is why our view was, if you look at the benchmarks of what people need to spend on different uh, categories, that's a pretty good indication of what they can get by on and whether or not they're going to be able to afford this mortgage. And that's
0: effectively what rising interest rates is meant to do to us as well you know cut back in our wagyu and shiraz and you know it's like the case in Absolutely. point a
2: uh, current environment but why do you think that was such a big why do you think that was so important though brian like because a lot of people like if that went the other way which you know and asic one which i'm not sure what their chances were anyway but that's what really was causing the 2018 2019 repricing to the property market. And when your case was solved, plus the election, plus rate cuts, plus APRA cutting, there was a, a multiple of positive things, but that that was such an important case. Why do you think it was so important for just the whole Australian economy really?
3: Yeah. Uh Well, I think it would have led to an excess of, conser- it, w- it was already leading, you would have seen this, it was already leading to an excess of conservatism in bank lending policies where the mindset and, and this has been, a, frankly, a, a broad issue for banks over the last 10 years, that the mindset stopped being, I'm going to make a commercial judgment about risk and return and what's appropriate. And it started being, what's the regu- regulator going to do to me? And how do I protect myself against accusation of of violating the regulation? And so the mindset became all about, how do I make sure that I'm being conservative enough that I don't get in trouble with a regulator? Because if I do, if the regulator decides I've done the wrong thing, regardless of whether I have or not, I'm going to have a PR issue because the regulator feels they need to say everything publicly. I'm going to have the stock market get um, worried that I've got a problem. I might get I might get fined um, and and so on. And so it has led to this real um, conservatism, gun shyness, whatever you want to call it. But in particular, and I think where in addition to reducing the amount of credit that was available it also made the process of getting credit incredibly difficult because the banks had all these lawyers looking at the regulations and one of the things i like to point out about banking is that banking ultimately most people would agree is about judgment that i assess someone based on character i assess them based on their their balance sheet i assess them on on these things and and then in cash flow and so on and and then I make a judgment. But actually, regulators tend to look at things through the line, the, the eyes of, of a lawyer. And lawyers don't do gen- generally do judgment. Lawyers do black and white. Lawyers do rules. And so what we've had is the imposition of a tremendous amount of very prescriptive rules about what banks need to do, what's okay, what's not okay. The consequence of that then manifests in long application forms, um, things timing out and needing to be redone, uh, all these things that make the process of getting a mortgage much more difficult. Now, ironically, it's probably been a good thing for the brokerage industry because brokers are the ones who can then say to the customers, look, this is going to be really hard, but I'll sort it out for you. Um, so I actually think some of this has been good for the brokerage industry uh, because it's recreated a reason for brokers to to play a role in these conversations. Um, but I'm not sure it's it's the most productive and efficient way to get credit to the economy as to in in terms of where it ought to go.
2: Yeah, I mean, if it didn't, if it it went went back down the looking at expenses, um, you know, everyone would be very conservative around their spending, right? The the economy just day to day spending. If I have to go borrow money, if they're going to look at my bank statements, I'm going to have to be really tight. And so, if we went to that world, um, even borrowing money would be really difficult because if they are overspending, they'll they won't be able to borrow what they were planning to spend. So it was such a key, even the property market pricing, is it's priced on how much access to credit there is, right? And so as that access to credit got really tight, less buyers, property gets repriced down. So it was such a key case to to be a part of, I'm sure, and um, I'm glad you guys got the win. Yeah, thank
0: you. Not only you. that, but I mean, because of all of that activity, you know, with the, the, the tightening up of lending, particularly to investors as well, and also the, Royal, the Banking Royal Commission, that- all created effectively the longest downturn we've had in property prices since we've been tracking prices. Right, so look at CoreLogic come out with those lovely, lovely charts that show the the length and the um the length and the depth of any of our downturns, and that is by far the longest and most protracted. So, um, and I think the deepest actually, uh, the last time we looked at, I think we've just pipped. We've got just had one of the shortest ones. <laughs> But steepest, shortest but steepest, I don't think we quite got that far. Um, but that was a two-year downturn as a consequence of this, I guess, um, would you say it was a structural change, the way that banks went about lending money and obviously had a, a real impact in terms of constricting um, access to credit?
3: Uh, yes, it, it was absolutely a structural change. And it has profoundly changed the way banks think about credit and, and what they can provide. Um and not necessarily, not necessarily all bad. By the way, I mean I think that uh, I have a lot of sympathy with the Reserve Bank in uh, wanting to be careful about asset bubbles getting out of control. Um, you know, because they can do, and that that can end up being quite painful. Um, but if you, if I step back from that, the why are why do property prices continue to rise and and be so resilient in Australia? Well, a big part of it is because we have a supply deficit. Uh, we've got, I think the the figures are bouncing back to something north of 250 or 300,000 immigrant net immigration over the next 12 months. Um, we aren't building that much housing. And, and so um, you have all sorts of things that restrict the ability of the supply of housing to grow, to meet the demand, um, and that pushes prices up. And so when you do have a structural in, in, uh, impost, like making it much more complex and difficult to get credit and restricting the number of people who are able to get credit, um, that limits therefore the ability to not only buy properties but build properties, um, and, and to address the supply side of this.
0: On the, on the flip side, it also protects the market as well. I mean, you look at the US and the, the subprime lending situations, like the antithesis of that. Yeah. So, uh, Yeah.
3: And, I, and and so, I don't think we should always be cheerleaders on just one side of this. You know, we want we want steady growth in value that's driven by a nice balance between growing supply and growing demand, and, and and we don't want that to get too out of kilter either way.
2: So, I mean, you've got some friends at um, the RBA as well, which will just finally, before we wrap you up with Dumbo, that, what's your sort of take on, you know, their experience over the last few years? And, you know, the stories pre rate increases, what they've had to deal with in the last 12 months and, you know, how they're going to potentially play, you know, the rate pausing or rate cuts. Like, you know, what's the sort of insights into their mind, I guess, that
3: you got from working with them, I guess? Um, I, I guess just two things I would observe. One is that they are not afraid, and this is fundamentally a good thing. They're not afraid to do what they think is right for the long-term Health of the economy, um, and they are concerned about inflation getting out of control and wanting to make sure that that doesn't happen. And they they've shown themselves prepared to lift rates to to try to deal with that. Um, and I just again go back to the thing I said earlier about the fact that unfortunately they have pretty limited tools to do that, which is why they have to focus on mortgage rates, even though what they're really trying to do is tamp down spending in other parts of the economy. Um, so. You know, but they're doing what they think is right. The second thing I would say, though, if I had a criticism, it's that they can be a bit on the academic side. Um, The Reserve Bank is full of some exceptionally bright people, and they know they're exceptionally bright. Um, And sometimes exceptionally bright people focus very much on data and facts, but maybe don't necessarily appreciate the nuances of psychology and how the market works and how consumers think. And, and that can cause them to overshoot, um, one way or another. And, and so I guess that would be my, my observation is that they probably waited too long to raise interest rates. And then, uh, my worry is that there's always a the danger that they go too far.
2: Too far or hold them up for too high for too long. Um, yeah.
3: I'm not too worried about where they're at at the moment. I mean, I think, I think they're predominantly doing a, a pretty reasonable job, um, in terms of how they're playing the situation right now um but i think you could argue that if they had intervened a bit earlier we might not be quite in this situation but then again they're not alone i mean reserve banks around the world have have had this issue
2: yeah i mean we could see in 2021 right the prices of properties were going absolutely bananas um not just in our capital cities our regions etc and that's why apra stepped in and increased the assessment rate right um but ultimately, that was, you know, there was signs of inflation around the world in January, right? And they didn't lift rates to what was it May. And, um, you know, that's potentially when you could have really argued they potentially should have came in a bit earlier, I think. Um, what's your Dumbo for us, Brian? Have you, um, you've got a tale you can share with us that uh, hopefully will be a bit humorous?
3: Yeah, well, I don't know how, it's, it's um, only humorous when you um, think about how Uh, Well, that's not really very humorous, I have to say, but it's, it's again, just, um, some friends of mine who, um, helped their, um, their kids buy their first house and, um, they gave their daughter effectively the down payment, didn't document it. Um, and nine months later, um, the, uh, the husband ran off with his uh, wife's best friend, um, and then, um, went into a, a very difficult, um, legal thing where he insisted that he needed half the value of the house as, as part of going away. And by the way, he didn't work um, as well. As she was kind of supporting the whole thing, but he got half the house. And, um, you know, it's just so avoidable very, and, and really unfortunate.
0: Yeah, avo- I hate avoidable stories, and especially ones that aren't funny. Um, yeah, that's true. It, it Like you say, it is avoidable, but we all have great um, hopes <laughs> we make these commitments and um, it's fundamentally one of the things that we talk about this podcast a lot is getting the right advice from the right people at the right time and making decisions with your eyes open and and that is one of those classics it just to to not just trust that things are going to be fine but to get good advice like you mentioned earlier on about getting that advice if you're going to go and lend your kids money or give your kids money or whatever well Brian, thank you so much for uh, that's
2: a pleasure. I've yeah, enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been
0: a great chat and very informative, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as well.
2: So do I. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for and sharing the insights around the Royal Commission, the whole Wagyu case. It's very enlightening. That's and, a um, pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it, to hear your thoughts. Thanks for coming
3: on. That's great. And um, uh, if your listeners could check out two b.com.au, there's a lot of good information there for them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. In the uh, with a you know your bank of mum and dad, you're thinking about borrowing money. You know, I think um. Our advice to our clients is really having those real round the table conversations. You know, not only what the, you know, thanking them for the money, making sure you've got all the brothers and sisters on board. Um, How are you going to get rid of this loan? What are you going to commit to? How are you going to keep the parents informed? Um, You know, have some really deep conversations. Document it all. You know, Two B's got lots of great resources there. um, Because it's too late, two or three years down the line, and things aren't working out like you say that the relationships breaking down. If that wasn't discussed. you know people start drawing lines in the sand, and um yeah, I think it's a really good advice to be to be getting that advice. We'll include the link in the show notes,, uh, Brian.
0: and um as I mentioned earlier, I'll also put the link in for that your first home buy guide uh, episode as well because that also I think we've got a download in there that's all the things you should talk about, but it sounds like there's great resources on your website which I might check out for your first home buy guide as well. It could be please another do, conversation.
3: You can also go to the website and find out what your house is worth, which is quite cool. Oh, no,
0: that's one of my bugbears, AVMs, <laughs>
1: press a button. Oh,
2: no. Awesome. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for All coming right, guys. On.
3: Take care.
1: If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at the elephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.